Doctor said I need to do what brings me joy. Yeah, well, I hope this brings you joy. It does. It brings me joy to see your faces. Yeah. And with that, we are back from a year and a half hiatus to the Whiteness America podcast. And more excitingly, we are joined with our new additional host, host. I don't know what the title, I don't, I don't understand title. Hostess with the mostest. The hostess with the mostest, Dora <laughs> Josephina Carmona. Josie. Hey guys. Hi. How's it going? Oh, I'm great. And Josh is still here, I guess. I'm over here, but I'm back in Colorado now. <laughs> you wouldn't know I don't, hey. I don't think the people knew that you left and came back. That's how long we've back. been gone. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that's when he left to New York. No worries. I guess you could blame it on Josh leaving to New York. Kind of was yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So our, if I'm doing the math right. And so our last episode was when Joe Biden uh, uh, was announced, I think, the winner. And Josh and I were like, we need to do an episode and then we're going to do more. And then we didn't. And now here we are. And we have a, another host because why not have three? Three is better than two. I agree. And, jo- and Josie, you were on the show enough anyway. Like we might as well give you credit. How many shows did I do? Two or three? I think you've been on four. Yeah. Have I been on four? Yeah, I was yeah. going to say closer to four or five, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, you were our most frequented guest. Nice. I believe. Yeah. Yeah, well, it makes sense then. Yeah. I so like uh, being in your company. Yeah. So in our little uh, before chat, we were talking about things that bring us joy. And I just have to say that the, the two, seeing the two of you... Uh, brings me joy so thank you for being able to talk on this dreary cold night in Michigan you can't see because it's one this is a recording of audio and people can't see that and two I have a background so they can't see it either (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah look at this you can't see it don't look at it it. imagine it yeah Yeah. (laughs) no so what's new what's going on wow In a lot of ways, it feels like time just has stood still, but not. So uh, let's see, 2021 was pretty wild, right? Like we had the January 6th insurrection. Um, I lost my mom. That was pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. And then I've just kind of been floating through the fall semester with more COVID ups and downs. I feel like COVID drives my world a little bit. Um, Oh, I started my consulting company. Oh, Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So all of our listeners out there, if you need a consultant, Josie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's been good. Um, I can't complain teaching still, um, working on healing and trying to place boundaries, you know, COVID created an environment where work was central and, um, there weren't very many boundaries with the way that I was producing. Like I just was hyper productive in 2020 and really 2021 up until July when my mom passed. And then from there, it just feels kind of like a hazy, um, you know, I've just been getting by, um, doing what I got to do. I feel like that, that, that grief span happens. And then you add COVID onto that with the time warp that that has. And it's just like, you know, as we were saying, like a year and a half has gone by or whatever, since the last time, you know, we sat down, Josie, you were on the episode right before our last one. And it was just it doesn't feel like that long ago. So you know, yeah. I can understand that haze feeling. And I saw Josh. I was the first person to visit Josh in New you York were. in April because I had to make a a quick trip up to Connecticut to see my niece and we got to link up. You had only been there for like a month, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Siora loved it because you were the first one to take her to the beach. I know. I was you looking were. at the video the other day. Yeah. I helped her touch the water. She wanted yes. to jump off of the pier so bad, dude. No. I was like, we're not mermaid, mija. We can't, we, or little, what was it? The little mermaid. We can't do that. Yeah. And it's freaking cold. 
She still remembers it like it was yesterday. She still talks. I can't about wait it. to see you guys. Aren't you coming up this way or down this way? Down this way, yeah. It's for Joey because he wants to check out UTEP. Oh, you got to tell Tom the story. So Joey, well, okay, you know this. You know, Josie likes to plant little seeds. She's a little mm-hmm. seed planter, mm-hmm. especially with UTEP gear. You know, she'll be like, oh, look what I bought your baby. And that baby grows up seeing that damn shirt every day. And then it's like, what is this? Oh, it's a, oh, I like to go see that school. It's like, oh, no, this was just a gift. No, now I really want to go check it out. So now Joey wants to go see the school. He's curious. That's awesome. We're bringing them down. You're going to stop the NMSU. Yeah, the minors. Yeah. What is that? Like The pick. Oh. Well, this, it could be this too, right? But we're not the roadrunners because the roadrunners do it like this. They stole our sign. Right. And you know, you're not the anteaters, which is, uh, <laughs> is that an I don't anteater? remember. Yeah. The anteaters is some other university. I don't remember which one that is. And that's the two fingers on the thumb. Yeah. Like this. Huh. Yeah. And then you got the hook'em horns, which is the not oh, yeah. so great school. Yeah. We don't talk about them. We don't. Yeah. It's like Bruno. We don't talk about UT. Oh, yes. Don't talk about Bruno. I love that movie. Can I just say we should do a podcast on that? Just we should. I mean, like the whole, like particularly the mental health aspect of it, the interplay throughout, and yeah, there's a lot of great. Well, the whole concept of colonization and yeah, the trauma that it causes and how it impacts families in so many ways. Oh yeah, Yeah. there's our next podcast. (laughs) There we go. There we go. Yeah, yeah. I think the number one song on the Billboard charts still. I know. I've been seeing it. They played at quinceañeras and weddings. It's yeah, like it's super okay. popular. <laughs> My kids will not watch the movie because they don't do uh, uh, conflict, but they love the soundtrack. Oh. Yeah, it's con- soundtrack's killer. It yeah. is so good, yeah. so good, so good. So uh, yeah, I mean, so we have a big episode today, right? So we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit later on bell hooks. I wanted to do this whole kind of like honoring the thinkers and those that came before us in this work. And so kind of like this on their shoulders thing. Of, of, and, and so today's episode, we're going to really dive into Bell Hooks, who's one of my favorite humans um, in this work and really is part of the reason why I do what I do. But before we get to that, uh, what's, what's going on out there? So we had the Super Bowl this weekend uh, and the amazing halftime show which uh, I think we wanted to talk a little bit about um, in some level. So uh, I guess we'll start there. Uh, what were your thoughts on the, on the halftime show and um, what it meant for the conversation on race in this country? Well, I couldn't stop laughing at all of the tweets about, you know, recognizing and realizing that if you're like jamming out to it, you have now officially entered the old crew Right. Um, But I saw this Twitter or I guess it was a tweet or a meme on um, Instagram that said like halftime performance of of like CRT halftime performance, which I thought was amazing um, because of all of the drama that CRT really took on last year. Speaking of right last year, critical race theory became like a huge politicized term. and Who most have known our work would be illegal in 20 states. Yeah. Like in Texas, you know, we passed a whole bill. Um, you can't teach about critical race theory and it was never there. Right. And so I was, I enjoyed the performance because in spite of um, what the NFL is trying to do, because I find a lot of the work that they're doing with ending racism is like, um formative yes performative for sure um because i know that like i think in one of the songs dre did like sing the lyrics about like f the police right he didn't change the lyrics he didn't change the lyrics then eminem took the knee although they did make kendrick like change his lyric about um, the police, right? The police are trying to kill us lyric. I don't, I'm not quoting that exactly, but I thought it was powerful. And, um, and so I'm just fascinated by the fact that Jay-Z who I, you all know, I love and adore 
but I was really like bummed when I, I felt like he sold out totally when he went to work for the NFL. And so then I'm thinking like, okay, there's that balance of, um, how radical are you and how do you expose people to things in more subversive ways? And maybe that's the goal. I don't know. What do you think? It's funny that you bring that up because I, we were, we had a, a guest lecturer a week ago. Uh, it was our second episode, our second episode, second um, speaker on an anti-racism series that we're doing at uh, school business and uh, which is now where I work. So in the last year and a half, I've oh. changed jobs too. Right. So like, Oh, dang. Uh, but yeah. So like we had somebody on and one of the questions was what's, what is the, is there any value in taking the short wins versus the, the, the method of just blowing it up? And I think some of that comes with privilege, right? So I can, I can afford to do that is what I said. I was like, I can, I can take the small wins because the, the, the cost for me is not so great on my being, mm-hmm. um, or at least the perceived cost. Um, whereas I think someone else who has multiple intersecting identities that are minoritized probably has a greater cost to that waiting, that constant waiting. So, but I don't know another way because the structures are so difficult to unwind and unravel. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure. It makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Like um, Angela Rye was on Charlemagne the God podcast. And she talked about how she was just too much for CNN. Right. And she showed up authentic and, And, you know, you could see the pain. She shared the pain of like knowing that she left there because she was too much, but she had told young women to be, you know, unapologetically yourself, but it comes with a price, right? Like it wears on you, right? Um, You start to realize in spaces when you keep pushing for the small wins, you become the person that nobody listens to anymore. So then you have to reel it in and be like, is it worth this conversation? And so it's frustrating. It's, it's, it's re-traumatizes you every single time when you hold a minoritized identity, right? And I'll sit in meetings sometimes and be like, I just said that. I just said that. But if a white male says it, or if someone else says it, it's like, we're going to listen to that. And we're going to act like Josie didn't just say that. And I've reached that point in my new organization, right? Cause I'm almost at the four year mark where it's like, Ooh, now Josie's activism is getting to be too much. Right. And so because of life circumstances, I've been like scaling that in. And so I'm trying to balance who was it? Derek Bell and CRT said, Like, we're never going to eliminate racism. The best that we can do is, and I'm paraphrasing, right, is make the experiences um, of people of color um, more tolerable, right? Make the circumstances. So I keep thinking about that means these small little wins. So I saw the the halftime performance as a small win, you know? And it was a big celebration too. I, I do think it's a big thing, but at the same time, I also wondered like how much did they have to give, right? Cause it's back to that interest convergence piece. Like how much did they have to give in order to get, I also thought the end racism little banners in the end zone. Um, I had to laugh at that. I was like, man, this is the most racist league on the planet. And yet, but I get it. Like these are small wins and I guess we should, not always turn our head at that. So I appreciate that perspective. Yeah. And the music was great. Well, yeah. Like I felt like I was a teenager again, although I was reminded that I wasn't a teenager. I was in college, I think. And don't tell me what year it was. I was in college, right? You were getting your master's, yo. (laughs) Dude. Oh, that was a bird. My niece was like looking at me and Tamika and my sis. And we were like, 
dancing and she just looked at us like, what is going on here? So, but it was fun. It was good. Um, and those performers spoke to like critical things that were happening in their communities at the time, right? Like NWA, Snoop, um, uh, and then of course, Kendrick is more probably mm-hmm. Josh's Josh. You're the one who turned me on to Kendrick. Like, yeah, that's me too. Genius, me too. Yeah. right. I've been listening to him a lot more now because of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I yeah. think that that shows and what I liked about Kendrick Lamar, cause I don't think he was advertised, right? Like he, he was not advertised. Um, and what I liked about that is like the, the struggle still continues. And that's what that, that to me, that's what that signified is like, they were talking about this in the early nineties in the mid nineties, in the early 2000s. And then even in 2016, 17, I think that 2016 is when that song came out that Kendrick Lamar performed. Um, shit is still happening and it's still bad. Right. And it's, there's still the voice that needs to be heard. And, and like these stories are, are still there and relevant. And I think that that was a good reason why we need critical race theory, which I think will be an episode coming up as a case for critical race theory that I think we all can uh, really get into and delve into and maybe provide a different analytic to uh, the current narrative about it. Cause I'm kind of tired of the way the media is handling CRT. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. I think it's interesting because um, I, I, I'm sure you all heard that too, that um that there was a lot of like kind of restrictions or there were kind of some asks of the NFL before the performers went on, like obviously the language in their music, but also the way that they dressed, like they were told not to wear like specific colors, not to like flag or represent, you know, like gang culture, but they did it anyway. (laughs) You know, like look at Snoop. I was like, Oh shit. I was like, if that's not a crip call out, like, I don't know what isn't. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, that was and, brilliant. Yeah. And so, you know, it made me think about like us in our, in our like academic spaces, how we show up and sometimes like this whole idea of professionalism and what we're told to wear and not wear. And I got to be honest, like two things have happened. One, the pandemic, um, I'm not dressing, I'm not wearing like a button down shirt anymore to work one I, none of them fit <laughs> but two i'm taking all the power back because who should say what i should wear to work so now i'm wearing like t-shirts i'm wearing hoodies <laughs> i'm like so close to wearing joggers like i've thought about it i'm like man should i wear joggers like this is really close but i'm done like i'm done with having to tell have people tell me how to dress for work I'm like, let's sit down and lock mental horns and you'll see why I want to wear what I want to wear. You know, so ever since I've had to go back to work, I've just been wearing wherever the fuck I want and I've been enjoying it. And it makes me want to just do more. And it's been inspired by my sister, Tracy, because she's finishing her doc- doctor right now. And she's like, she got a fucking neck tattoo. Of like, Dude, it's and beautiful. Yeah. And she's like, what are, what are people going to tell me? She's like, I'm taking back all the power. And, and she got this idea, obviously, it's from um, Christopher and in Dr. Christopher Eden's book, uh, Ratchet Demick. Have you guys read that one? Mm-hmm. He's just talking about, like, how, you know, scholars today, like, we wear hats, we wear what we want. And, like, sometimes, like, the, the generation before us is kind of like, you know, why are you guys dressing like that? Like, represent yourself, like, more professionally. And it's, and Christopher Eden's like, no, this is how I want to dress, like. I'm actually taking back my culture to dress how I want. Like, and so I just been thinking about that every day and then seeing the performance on TV, I was like, these guys didn't give a shit about any dress policies. They just did what they do. So I just, that's something that just kind of connected with me right now. And I think you said it too, too, Josie, is that like, you know, you're getting to your fourth year and they're like, Oh, Josie's getting too radical. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Like you should just show up in like some flip-flops and see what they say. (laughs) Well, fortunately, I work at a place where the dress code wasn't like a major thing before COVID, but now everybody's like, you know, I stopped feeling the need to wear makeup, right? Um, But there are days that I do and I'll rock my hoops and my red lips. And um, I will say that I'm not beholden. I have a whole closet full of 
you know, Ann Taylor and Antonio Milani crap that I've been slowly donating over the course of this pandemic. But I think it, connecting to what you said, Josh, about we're reclaiming things. I think that idea of like the big, what is it called? The the big resignation or the great resignation. Oh yeah, right, right. Which it, it all comes back to this idea that people are starting to say like, what's important in life? And we started this podcast by talking about like what brings us joy. And I think people are saying, we no longer have to prove our value to you in our appearance, but our production of knowledge, of sharing creativity, and we can do that in ways that don't require us to sit at a desk from eight to five, wearing a business suit or a dress or heels or whatever, and, and acting out, like acting out whiteness, right? Um, which I find to be so refreshing. And I'm trying to lean into that because there's so much, there's just so much sadness and loss that we have experienced. And I don't want to ignore that or... Um, act like it doesn't exist. Um, but at the same time, there's some real opportunity to think differently. Um, and I want to ride that wave for as long as possible and setting boundaries and saying like, my life doesn't belong to you. Like, yeah, Yeah. you pay me a salary, but I'm still me. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm going to, and that's why I love Tracy too. When I saw the tattoo, like it is so beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I love the way that she shows up because she's totally unapologetically herself. Yeah. On the flip side of that, like Angela Rice um, interview, there comes a time when you kind of take a step back and maybe that's what it is, is this like ebb and flow of like some days you feel like you want to resist, right. And just push back. And other days you're just like, all right, give me the directive and I'll execute it. Cause I don't have the energy to explain to you why it's right. like the mask mandate. Mm. I'm just, I can't expend any more energy in explaining to people that masks keep us safe. So if you're telling me I have to let students into my classroom wearing a mask or, or that they don't have to wear a mask, well, that's fine. I'm going to approach it from the perspective of, I want to set like, the ethical values of our learning environment to say that we're going to protect one another. Yeah. Usually that works. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think too, like back to the dress piece and and the reclamation of that and thinking about how, who gets to determine what professionalism is in the first place and how that narrative has spun through centuries in this country and, and who's held that power and I was thinking about yesterday, my, my oldest Scarlett wore a, a dress to virtual school. She's in virtual school this year because we decided that it was, we don't have mask rules in the city that I live in. And so we were like, yeah, that doesn't seem like it's a good idea. And she had this dress on and it was like, she picks what she wants to wear. Like she totally dresses herself. She is, it is her personality. And I wonder at what age does that get squashed? And then I thought about dress policies in school and I read the little handout from her school about the dress policy for elementary school. And I'm like, it's totally oppressive. And I thought about like, she was like playing with her straps and like, she had this like strap dress on and that was all. And I was like, I had to catch myself. I was like, you want to put a shirt on? Cause I thought she was cold. And then I was like, oh, she's fine. Like she would tell me if yeah. she was cold, she'd ask for a sweatshirt cause she does it all the time. <laughs> and so, and I had, I had to check myself on that too. And I was like, oh, like this is like her expression and I just the workspace part of the what we're seeing I think is you're right like the, the, the resignations are happening because people aren't able to show up authentically and what we're seeing too is like particularly folks of color leaving and finding space where they can be and they're accepted and embraced and valued at a level that is not seen in in I would say higher ed in general and other spaces too. So I think this is a really interesting time for that. Yeah, for sure. And we'll be back in just one minute. Later in this episode, Josie Joss and I will talk about the work of author, educator, activist, the late Bell Hooks. Born Gloria Jean Watkins, but better known by her pen name, Bell Hooks was a foundational architect of black feminist work. Earning her PhD in English, Hooks authored over 40 books, 
from educational philosophy that critically examined pedagogy from a critical race and feminist perspective to children's books. Her work inspired millions, including the three of us. We wanted to feature Hooks as a way to honor her legacy and pay tribute to how she inspired us to be who we are today. For more information, you can find her books on a website named bellhooksbooks.com. And now, back to our show. You actually just said something that I just, like, we were talking about my sister, and she said something the other day when you said make space that she's like so sick of that phrase like we're gonna make some space or let's have brave space let's have some courage space she's like what does that sound like like when we make space we reserve space she's like it sounds like native reservations like i get to tell you when the space is created and how much of it and that's your reserve space to have that discussion but outside of that that's not yours and so her new thing is no i'm gonna take space Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. She, and, she, and she made a, a correlation between like the reservations and how like, okay, this is reserved for us to have this. No, we're going to don't do that. <laughs> we're going to lock ourselves into just spaces this big, you know. That's so I, true. I think that's brilliant. Um, yeah, I too wonder like about that in the way that we how that happens and like those small wins in an, like thinking about it in an organizational setting when you don't have space and then you move to taking space, but it still feels like it's part of that. Well, we're still going to, we'll let you take it, but we're going to let you take it within this boundary. And I think, right. I wonder if that small win, as we're talking about the small wins earlier leads to bigger wins, or if it is really a way to find out how to actually jolt the structure enough to where mm. it is a really legit taking of space and taking of airspace and taking of intellectual space and owning that in a way that actually is going to move up. And so um, I'm just thinking about that in my own organization, yeah. of how that yeah. works and how that might play out. So that the space issue is really fascinating because I'm working with a group right now to create like an equity space on our campus. Mm-hmm. And so um, we talked about what do we want to see in those spaces, right? Um, so I'm going to have to think about that tonight because we present like our ideas tomorrow um, because we're investing, right? So fortunately we have some money to invest in like painting and furniture and, you know, what, how do you create spaces um, or take spaces, right? Um, that, um give students the belief that that's it's theirs that it's not a sense of belonging right Mm -hmm. so flipping that too like we talk about sense of belonging and that leads to retention and all of those you know that we don't give a shit about um but honestly we know that people thrive in situations where they feel like they have ownership and so josh you and tracy gave me something to think about tonight because like I've, this is where I have to check myself about approaching things with that lens, right? Where we replicate the systems that we were brought up in. And even though we try and be, we try and act like disruptors and activists, like it's so ingrained in us that we even perpetuate the language. Mm-hmm. So I have some homework to do. Yeah, that's a group. Oh, sorry, Josh. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go right here. No, you go first. No, I was just gonna say when when we were talking about it, it's like it made sense to me. And um, you know, let's say that space has value. Okay, that's been reserved for minoritized groups. That space is no longer yours. They'll take it over, like as we seen with like oil like in the Dakotas, right? It's like, all right, that was reserved, but not really. We're going to come in and get what we want anytime we want. And we're going to show you how we're going to do that. So we just have to be careful with like, I think using that, like create space for that whole phrase and the action of, um, I think it's more or less like 
it's all of our space and we're going to take all of it as much as possible whenever however that's yeah. a good point i love that thank you i think uh this is a good point to transition to on on our our main topic of of uh bell hooks if you all are ready for that yeah um, Mm-hmm. And the reason why I like the transition is because she wrote a lot about language. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that one of the things that, you know, not that I want to jump too far ahead, but one of the things I really liked when I first read her work, um, I was a 21 year old college student. This book was uh, the book teaching to transgress was gifted to me by my mentor. And um, she said to me, if you're really serious about, doing this work, you need to invest your soul into bell hooks. And I was like, what does that even mean? And when I read the book, I really started to understand what it meant to invest my soul into something and my wholeness of, of my being. And when I read the chapter on language in this book um, and how she even struggled being in the academy and having to feel like she was losing her black vernacular because of academic writing and academic discourse and all of the things that are perceived to be academic when really we just don't we as a system don't value the knowledge. So like getting back to like Tara Yoso's work too, right? Like of the community cultural wealth, I, I, that really spoke to me. And I was like, holy shit, like how have I just been horrible at this? And then even later on in life, I had to catch myself again on reproducing the, the master narrative, if you will, in both my teaching and the way I worked with people and the editing. And so I feel like I, every time I go into teach a class or go into like thinking about creating content, I have to read this again, because it's like, it's like the space in which I want my brain to continue to inhabit and my soul and my heart to inhabit when I approach this, because being a white guy, I reproduce problematic things all the time. And I have to really work at that, not doing that. And so this helps me kind of keep myself in check and do that work, even though I still screw up all the time. So I just, I wanted to start there because I thought that was a, a, for me, like that's, that's what this means to me. And um, when she passed in December, like, I don't get really upset when celebrities die. I don't know if she's considered a celebrity. I wept, like I was crushed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Just because where we're at in the country, like we need this voice and her work and that narrative and so anyway I'll, I'll stop talking but I just I think that that's for me that's you know and that actually to be honest like that's what called me back to to bring us back together to do this is when she died I was like holy shit like I need I need to process this and I need mm-hmm. to talk about it and I need other people who may not know who she is to experience and explore this because maybe if we all had a little more bell hooks in our life we all would be getting that small work done and it'd be larger. So. Yeah, we'd be practicing that verb love, right? Um, when she passed, I had a few students reach out to me um, and ask me if I was okay. And I was like, oh, damn. I know I reached out to Susana and sent her a message because Susana is actually the person who exposed me to bell hooks in the doctoral program, because prior to that, I had not read any of her works. Mm. And, um, and so I remember thinking, you know, the work that we do is really critical. And so I felt like that teaching, which is what brings me joy, right. Um, is actually working because I had students reach out and say, hey, thank you for exposing me to her, right? In an undergraduate course, in the course that I teach La Chicana. And and I always preface, and even in my leadership, right? Like I made a choice, a cognizant choice, mainly because I struggled with it so hard. I don't know if you guys remember in that class with Susana and she talked about having an ethic of love and care. And I was like, what? not so I had done such an amazing job of like separating my personal identity with my professional identity that I had become this like really effective administrator. Um, and there was no emotion or genuine like tone at all. And the caring side would come out of me sometimes, but I always would repress it because it was like, 
that is not acceptable in these spaces that I'm in, right? And during the program and after Susana exposed me, I did a lot of self-reflection about like, like, I want to genuinely show up in the academy, even if people don't want me here, right? So reading her, reading, um, of course, rereading Audre Lorde. I read Audre Lorde when I was like 20s and it didn't mean the same thing as it meant back in my 40s when I was doing the program, right? Um, and so for me, Bell Hooks passing has really, it came at a time when I was mourning I was in grief. I mean, I'm still in grief. I don't think that ever ends, but just reflecting on like what matters and who do I want to be and the ability to show up authentically is huge in our spaces. Um, I once had someone tell me that they could never, they, that it was impossible for you to show up authentically. And I just looked at that person like, it was a white woman. And uh, I just, I disagreed. And I, and later it played out, right? Because one of the things I love about her book too, is the talking about white feminism and how it derails, you know, women of color and, and, um, and how you have to be cognizant of that. So I'm very cognizant of all of the different intersecting identities and what we see in higher ed. But at the end of the day, Bell Hooks is like call to do things through an ethic or a lens of love and care helps me regroup. And, and it reminds me that I'm on the right course and I may be seen as an activist or um, a disruptor, but I do it in the name of loving my students, loving my colleagues, loving the pursuit for education. Um, and if I can centralize that, um, the other stuff can wash off me. Now I'm not saying I don't like bust a blood vessel every now and again, but it, 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 it gives me something important to focus on. And so for me, bell hooks was life-changing. Um, and, and that's what I would hope for others to read her work. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've heard people say that she's done some problematic things and, and honestly, I, I have not spent a whole lot of time like dissecting all of that because I think in general, her legacy is that that we can make radical change through this approach. Every single session I do right now, I lead and end with bell hooks. And I work in a, a cold, and I'm just gonna say this, and I, I guess I don't care what the ramifications are. I work in a cold business school. Um, you know, this is a, it's a public institution, but the business school that I work for is very interesting in the way that we approach things. There are great things that are happening, but, to, to lead in business community with a love and ethic care is like, <laughs> I, I started that and I was like, I don't know way I'm going to get this job. And, you know, I, I write this stuff and I come out this way and, and, you know, folks are like, you're going to get laughed out of the room by our faculty. And, and yeah, they probably think it's a little too touchy feely, but at the end of the day, the way that I look at this is like, what we do is at the core is humanization, being humans and seeing other people as humans. And our jobs are to remove the processes, the practices, the beliefs and the values that result in the dehumanization. We can just do that. Like that is in essence what equity and justice work in my mind is at the core. And right. you do that through an ethic of love and care, right? And so Josie, like the, the way that you the quote that you used in your dissertation, I use all the time because I, to me, it is essential. So like to live our lives based on the principles of love ethic, showing care, respect, knowledge, integrity, and the will to cooperate. We have to be courageous. Learning how to face our fears is one way we embrace love. Our fear may not go away, but it will not stand in the way. Those of us who have already chosen to embrace a love ethic, allowing it to govern and inform how we think and act, 
know that when we let our light shine, we draw to us and are drawn to other bearers of light. We are not alone. And that's just super powerful, right? Like I can think of when we, were, when we had the summer of 2020 and the movements that were happening and the things that were going on, I kept drawing back to that theme because that's what I saw when I saw the demonstrations. It was people being drawn together, trying to move in, 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 in the spirit of love even though some people were perceiving that as violence. Like it was only violence because people were tired of being treated like shit and killed and, and not seen as humans. And so at what point do you get that attention? So I, I, I really appreciated you because I had never seen that quote before. And when I went to your defense, I was like, holy shit, that just like clicked. And I, I just love it. It's, it's part of my mantra for life. So thank you for that. Of course. I think it was, I used it because I, I really believe that because of my exposure to her and my willingness to be courageous, I was drawn to people like you all. Right. And I, I signaled to others that this is my ethic and I, you know, this is how I'm choosing to lead. And I, I lead with that quote in my staff meetings and faculty meetings. I remember the first time I did it, when I first showed up at this campus, everybody looked at me like I was just nutso, right? Like, Hey, what's up with this new chick, right? She's like, <laughs> and, uh, and now it's not so like, people are like, yeah, that's okay. Right. We get that. Like I met the new counselor and I, I told her like what drives me and when bell hooks passed, she sent me a message and she was like, Oh, I just wanted to let you know, I'm so sorry. Cause I know like, she's like, I had gone to go research her when you told me about her. And it's, it's just, um, I'm calling it now operationalizing theory. Right. So I know in, in this book, she talks about that, right? Like theory to practice, but I like the idea of operationalizing. Cause I think capitalists understand that term. Right project managers, type A's get it. But part of it is when we say that we want to do things to help students and succeed, um, it's basically taking what we've learned from the theory and operationalizing it, right? Putting it into action. And, and once they can see that connection, they're like, oh, I get what she's saying, right? It's no different than saying like Amarillo College has the caring attitude, right? They're one of the leading community colleges um, and they worked with um, Sarah. She talks about um, food insecurity. So they, they caring, like people are okay with saying we care about students, but when you add the word love in there, people get all weird, right? And I just always remember how people looked at me like, why are you saying you love me? Right. And learning to say that to the people that you truly love and care for. Yes. Sarah Goldrick Robb. Um, she was, she's the person who does a lot of research on um, food insecurity. And so Amarillo college adopted this, you know, care carrying perspective or approach but the love piece is what I think sets bell hooks apart, right? Because she dissects and she deconstructs the concept of love for us that removes the like materialized or commercialized definition of love or even the sexualized definition of love. Yeah. And I love that about her. And I think that that's the power of her work and her legacy is that at the end of the day, I know I, I learned to say, I love you to the people that I love, irrespective of having romantic love with them. Right. Yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned that because my, my first exposure to bell hooks was, I was lucky. I had a really good intro to education, uh, professor. Um, and I was like 18. Wow. So I was like, dang, this is, you know, off the planet for me right now like I'm not even on the planet with it I don't even know what this is but what I do remember us talking about and she had a book out at the, at the time I think it was called like salvation or something salvation of black people in love or something and in the book she talked about like her fears within like the the, the many facets of love and what she said in the book was 
that she fears that when she is gone, that basically we as humans in society would move further and further away from what knowing what love was anymore. And that there would be a time when we wouldn't know what it is. And that was her biggest fear. And to sit with that and to imagine that, I mean, I was 18. I was like, what, like, what does that mean? I still don't get, I can't fathom that. But as we look at our society, COVID is so exposing of like individualism and just so many different facets of being a human being these days. Maybe it makes more sense now or it's starting to, and I don't want it to make sense. But that was one of her biggest fears. I think she mentioned it in that book. And so I wanted to ask you both, like, you know, how do you connect with that? Like knowing that we have moved away from some specific pillars of feelings as humans, because we're so dynamic that we can ebb and flow between what is important and not. But imagine if we were to ever move it away, move away from the essence of love. What would we be? would be on the show billions <laughs> yeah. speaking of we'll have to talk about that later but <laughs> yeah for sure um that's pretty deep josh um i can't imagine i mean i guess i would have the same fear that she has right that and i've seen it right like the fact that we can't that we're okay with death during covid that your like, and I'm just, I'm saying yours or a person's individual right to be maskless and not vaccinated. And then that that has become central to the argument and with no consideration. And I, as a person who am high, am high risk, I've, I've spent a considerable amount of time indoors. Mm-hmm. I don't go to restaurants. I don't go out. I wear a mask and double mask everywhere I go, because for me, the, the fear of dying from COVID is very real. Right. And I feel it in my body with all of these restrictions being lifted again. I feel like, oh man, I'm nobody cares about me. Right. The general population doesn't care. They only care that they can go and, you know, have their dinner without a mask or go into a store. And so I've become largely homebound in a way that I just, for me has taken an emotional toll and a mental toll, right? And so I have had moments and feelings of deep sadness and anger towards people who can't spend just a minute thinking about someone else. And I think that's rooted in a lack of love for one another. Um, but it's also deeply rooted in white supremacy and capitalism and individualism. And then of course I live in a state where those are the, what those are, that's the mission and vision. Exactly. (laughs) Right. In Texas. And so, so I'm, I'm having to balance, but then I also have a huge privilege, right? So then also recognizing the privilege that I have to be able to stay home and to have still earned through and not been. But I know that most people who look like me, right? My brown communities were highly impacted and continue to be impacted by COVID. Mm-hmm. And to believe that we think they're disposable in that way makes me really sad. And so to hear that that was Bell Hooks's biggest fear makes me sad for her. Right. Because in some ways, this pandemic has highlighted just how unloving we can be as a society and who we choose to take care of um, largely is about like what you can get from them. Right. So the entrance conversions of that piece. Right. And it reminds me of what they said. Uh, somebody, somebody posted on Instagram that here was Kendrick Lamar modifying his lyrics to entertain white people. Right. Yeah. So this cycle of hypocrisy and um, so 
that makes me sad. I, I do think, however, that as educators, that we have a role to play in introducing the concepts of love by bell hooks, mm-hmm. um, encouraging it and modeling it as much as we can. And then when we're in administrative roles, really looking at policies and asking. And so I would, I always tell my faculty, like, is this decision you're making with the student? Is it the most loving decision? And when I say that there's pause, they're like, oh, I'm sure oh, shit. she just asked me if <laughs> I love my students. Right. Like, oh yeah, we're here for the students. I forgot. I thought we were here for myself. Right. Well, <laughs> but, you know, we'll say that we love it. We care for students, but when you bring in the word love, right? Is this really loving and caring? Ooh, it pushed that. I bet that throws them off. It, it did initially. And now I'm seeing that they come to the table with more flexible responses. They're giving students more chances. We use the word, I, I always use the word, have more grace for your, yeah. for your students, right? You don't yeah. know what's happening with them, but it's been slow, right? I'm going on four years and they're little tiny wins. Yeah. So I'm sorry to be long-winded, but your question is going to sit with me tonight. We can always do part two. Yeah. And come back to this too. Cause I think, I do think it's like super critical and, and, and important. Cause I think the ultimate death of humanity is the loss of love. And, yeah. you know, like I even think about my own reaction, Josie, you, you caused this in me to think like, Oh shit. Like I get really a- angry. I'll listen to the news and I'll get really angry at people who are being overly racist or science deniers or anti-vaxxers. And I'll just get frustrated and anger. And then I'm just like, you're playing into where they are. Mm -hmm. So how do you build love and compassion for those things? Because that's really where where we're lost is we don't have that capacity to, to do that. And it's just, I really have to check my own self on, on a, on an individual level for that. But I like the context of like asking people, are you showing someone love? Because I think the way I see getting back to the great resignation too, like as someone who works with other humans, how am I giving other people grace? How am I showing them love? Right? Like, so I'll be in a meeting and I want to air my, my colleagues dirty laundry, but like we'll be in a meeting and we'll have this conversation and people are like, I just want to be flexible. I want the flexibility to run my team. I want these things. And then when someone else makes a mistake, it's like, they're fucking idiots. Mm-hmm. Not realizing that they're doing the same thing. And because they've been wronged, right? Like they have that, they can, they can now be an ass. Critical. It's just like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's different. Like, I think you can be critical and still have grace. And I still, I think you can be critical and hold people accountable and do it with love. And I think that that's the important part of the work that we do when people are in spaces or, you know, for me, like my work with white folks on race, like I have to hold them accountable, but I also have to do it with love because I've tried to do it with judgment and that's really not good or effective. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Sometimes it makes me feel better, but like that's, that's about me, right? That's not actually about progress. Uh, and so I think that that's the, that's the thing that I think is, um, part of this is like, and that's the hard, the hardest part is showing someone you don't want to love, love. For sure. Right. And I, I think, and this will, I'll say this and then be done for this part, but I've never been one for a lot of religiosity, but you know how they say, love thy neighbor. Right. I think what bell hooks did was which I think made her genius was appeal to something deep in your humanity that has nothing to do with religion, but really asks you as an individual, like, how do you want to show up? Right. And I think that's what I loved most about it is that she wasn't doing it in a judgmental way or saying this is the right way, or this is the only way. It was like, of course, most people would say that 
they want to love or love, be loved, right? That love gives you a sense of security, right? Um, happiness, joy, whatever you want to call it. And so when I think about that, I think it jars people to like come out of like the robotic approach to, you know, capitalism and, and white supremacy, right? The things that they don't know that are just so subconscious that they just have replicated for generations. I think that um, I got distracted <laughs> and I'm getting old. Anyway, <laughs> I think about this is that bell hooks did it in a way that didn't, didn't, doesn't make you feel judged or, um, it just makes you self-reflect over and over and over. I mean, I can read one page and be like, damn, yeah, that's wild. You know? Yeah. I'll say this too. That this probably be what I have to say at closing is anytime there's like conflict, I think since I was growing up, whether it be like, it could be small arguments, like my mom, my dad, or it could be neighbors, it could be people at school, just whatever. And even more so like on a grander scale, say like Russia, the US, like my, as I'm observing these pieces of conflict happen, down deep, I'm hoping that one individual just has a little bit more love than the other so that it doesn't go to a place of just cat- catastrophic, like, like no going back. And that, that's from like the smallest relationships that I observe to the largest ones. And, but just imagine if nobody did have that piece of compassion or love in their heart where they're just like, no, like I'm not backing down. I'm not saying sorry. Like, I don't care what kind of damage this does to the person or their country or their whatever to the planet. I'm going all in. And so ever ever since I was little, I'm always just like waiting for that one person to be like, to evoke the love, to stop it. And even now, as I watch like Russia and US, I'm like, who's going to have the love? Like, who's going to be the one to be like, okay, we're backing now. And it's like, I'm waiting and I'm waiting for that to happen. And the fear is like, I think with Bell Hooks is like, her fear was, imagine if nobody did. That's scary. So, but luckily, I mean, we're still in a world, I think, where we can still, there's a lot of things to salvage and create and, and share, like you said, Tom, you know, and, and I think it's by like, there's a thin line between love and hate. And I'm not saying that because it's the movie and I love that movie. Okay. You should watch it sometime, but it's a true statement. <laughs> there really is a thin line between love and hate. And um, I just thought today, cause we have a, we have a teacher shortage here in Denver public school. We have a teacher shortage all over the U S right now. And I'm subbing third or today I sub second grade Spanish. Okay. Second grade Spanish class. And this little girl comes up to me. She goes, I love you, Mr. Trinidad. She just met me. And I was like, well, I'll be back next Thursday. And she like hugged me when she hugged me. She went, "Mm." she's like made a little grunt. This little girl. And I was like, oh, and that like made my day. When you get to go to work and you get a hug grunt like that, never, you know? So there's still hope. So even though Bell Hooks got to see like this, you know, I think us is like her, I'll call her our, you know, we're disciples of her where I think it's our job to carry out her vision though and to continue the good work. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, I'll, I'll just end on this too, because this is, I think um, one of the things that, you know, we all experience trauma and we've all experienced loss. And uh, one of the things that my dad passed away in 2010, and one of the things that helped me get through that was in her book, All About Love, the chapter on love and death, I think is what it is. Mm -hmm. And like, 
I went back to that and um, whew, like even just reading it, cause I read it again tonight um, in preparation for this. This is nothing like preparing at the last minute for something. Um, and and uh, like, I was very verklempt and like crying and like much in my head about how I still struggle with processing grief and like, how am I working through that? And like the love of the fear of death rather than the fear of losing love. Cause I think that's exactly what she was talking about, Josh. And like, so it's like, Oh, I, I need to focus on that and, and, and really be in that headspace. So I appreciate the two of you. And so I, I don't know, Josie, are you, are you good? <laughs> you made me cry. Cause I, I read that chapter again today. Right. Yeah. You know, grief, grief. Um, and I felt like it was critical to the book to really talk about um, loss. So what does that mean um, in terms of what you do when people are alive, right? You want to love them and love them in a different way, right? And really get to the core of, um, I guess, unconditional love. Mm. Um, although we could get into a whole conversation about that too. Um, but I've just appreciated hanging out with you guys tonight. Like it's been it's good. Yeah, I agree. It's good to be back. Yeah. So. Refreshing. It feels good. So I can't wait till we do the next one. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's the end of this episode and I, I'll end it a new way. Okay. I, I love you all. I love you guys. Thank you. I love you all. Thank you.